0: When you find yourself dealing with issues of the heart, you inevitably find yourself dealing with very tricky territory. After all, it's the heart that really ends up being that part of us that sets the compass heading for our lives. And unless we find ourselves dealing effectively with the issues of our hearts, well, oftentimes we find the issues of our hearts dealing pretty effectively with us. In the book of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, God gives us this very important insight. There we read, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The fact of the matter is, the things that are going on in our hearts right now, tonight, are those things that inevitably will set the course of our lives for our futures? The big question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we get ourselves in a place where God can deal with us, not in a superficial sense, not just in terms of loading up our minds with wonderful pieces of doctrine, but where the very love of God itself can touch us and transform us and change us on that heart-to-heart level. Well, tonight, in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, as we move into 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to come face-to-face with an individual who probably could have saved himself a lot of grief if he had dealt with the issues of his heart. As we were introduced tonight to a major player in the book of 1 Samuel, a man named Saul, who had become the first king of Israel. We will see in Saul's life a failure to deal with three of the most pivotal issues of the heart, three issues of the heart that we must deal with if, in fact, we are to have that heart-to-heart relationship with God that he desires to give to us. We'll see tonight first the issue of character, the whole role of being a person of principle and how that plays out in a godly life. Secondly, we'll see the issue of commitment, how our perspective, whether it's from our own point of view or from the Lord's point of view, will have an awful lot to do with how we end up in this life. And finally, we're going to see the issue of consistency in a godly life, how perseverance during the toughest times can be one of God's most choice and select tools to work upon our hearts in this life. Hopefully tonight, what we're going to discover is that the decisions that we make concerning the condition of our hearts is going to have more to do in the final analysis. When the sun is down, the day has come to an end, about where we end up in life than almost anything else. And if you want a life of blessing, or if you want a life where you just get blasted, you're going to find out exactly where you're going by discovering exactly where you are heart-to-heart with God. Well, to bring you up to speed in terms of where we are in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, last week, if you were with us, we discovered that that old adage, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it, was about to come true for the people of Israel. Israel wanted a king, not necessarily because they were concerned about their direction under the dubious leadership, of Samuel's sons, and they were not fit spiritual leaders. The reason that Israel wanted a king was basically because they wanted to be like everybody else. Just like we were in junior high where you wanted to blend in. No matter how outlandish your style or fashion looked to your parents, you better believe it looked just like everybody else that you were hanging out with just as you discovered that it's the nail that sticks up that gets hammered down well so Israel was operating under that same peer pressure oriented perspective they thought that by having a king but like being like everybody else that would give them the peace that would give them the security that they were looking for and so god heard their request and he warned them about the consequences of what having a king would be all about they would be taxed back to the stone age by this fellow He would live for His glory and not for their benefit. But along with that warning came a persistent whining on the part of Israel. No, nevertheless, we want a king. And so God gave them what they wanted. And inevitably, when God gives in to one of our selfish, fleshly-oriented requests, independent of what His perfect will is, for our lives, independent of his timing for our lives, he gives us what we ask for and inevitably a little bit more. And that is where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. There we read, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among all the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites but they did not find them. Now, here in the first four verses of 1 Samuel chapter 9, I think we get a very interesting and remarkable insight into the whole idea and the, the, the whole picture of the character of this man whom God was going to give to the people of Israel as their first king. In many, many ways, he was precisely everything they could have hoped for. He was the Sears catalog issue Middle Eastern king. Look, first of all, at the connections that this man brought to the job. He is described as the son of Kish, who is described as a mighty man of power. That word power in the Hebrew can also be translated well. He was an individual who owned quite a bit of property. He was a person of means, and he was a person of authority. And let's face it. If you're going to choose a leader, if you're going to choose someone to be the one who's calling the shots, oftentimes we take a look at what's going on in their bank book when we go looking for someone to lead, even in the church. You know, I've been involved with a number of churches in my ministry career since I got into ministry in 1981. And more often than not, you find that the people who tend to serve on the governing boards of churches are individuals who are pretty well healed. I know of an individual who talks about the qualifications for being on a board is is someone who can either bring wealth or wisdom to the work. Well, oftentimes that's what we go looking for. But what is surprising to learn that wealth in and of itself is probably one of the poorest barometers for fitness for a spiritual task that you will ever run into. Consider what the book of James has to say about this tendency that we have to get carried away with the things that people have in their pockets rather than in their hearts. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, are convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, once again, James, with his characteristic bluntness, lays things out for us. Just because someone is well healed doesn't mean they are well-hearted. But that was what the people of Israel were impressed with. Saul met their criteria because of his connections. But notice something else that Saul brought to the table that catapulted him into power in their sight. Verse 2 says, And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, stop and think for just a second. You want to talk about a candidate for leadership. Not only does this guy have big bucks, he also is pretty easy on the eyes. He is a good-looking individual. you ever noticed how good-looking people are treated better somehow than those who say are cosmetically challenged in this life? They seem to be kind of ushered in. They seem to be given the benefit of the doubt. They seem to be given first choice at the top positions just because of how they look. Notice as well, it says, from his shoulders up where he was taller than any of the people. Now, Saul was a guy that people could look up to quite literally. I mean, when he walked in the room, he was a commanding personality. And when someone is just physically imposing like that, they do tend to command our respect. I remember back in the, uh, gosh, I'm really dating myself right now, back in the early 80s, I was working out down at UCLA at Drake Stadium, the track facility that they have there. I was doing some sprints and running around the track and warming up. And lo and behold, I looked, and entering into Drake Stadium, they have this chain-link fence around the facility, but they have one of these gates that comes in, you know, one of these uh, kind of rotating door kind of gates. And lo and behold, coming through this gate was probably the most impressive Specimen of humanity I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this fellow filled up this gate from the top of his head to his shoulders. Why? Well, it was Wilt Chamberlain, the basketball player, who had come down there to do a little jogging. And let me tell you something when Wilt wanted to run your lane, you let Wilt run in your lane. He was truly a guy who was head and shoulders above everybody else. And Saul commanded that same kind of presence, that same kind of respect. But once again, Externals are not what God looks for when he looks for a leader. Do you remember the story of Samuel? And we'll explore this in a few chapters. Being sent to the home of a man named Jesse by God to find the next king of Israel. Well, Jesse decided to lead with the obvious candidate. He brought his son Eliab out for Samuel to consider And Samuel Eliab was a strapping young man, very commanding looking, very regal, very muscular, had everything going for him. And Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God pulled him up short and said, Do not look at his height or his stature or his appearance, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Hey, Saul had it all together on the outside, but as we're going to see, he had some serious problems on the inside. But along with his connections and his countenance, his cosmetic appeal, Saul also had something else that would recommend him for a leadership role, probably catapult him right on into an eldership or a deaconship in most churches. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkey. Now we kind of look at this and our first impression is, well, the old man is sending him out to look for the livestock. That probably isn't a very significant assignment. Oh, but we need to take a step back in time and culture and understand what donkeys represented to the people of that day. A donkey was probably one of the single most valuable pieces of livestock that a person could have at that time. It was useful for plowing. It was useful for bearing burdens. It was useful in a number of different functions that were absolutely key to an agrarian society like the people of Israel lived in. Virtually everybody, no matter how poor you were, would scrape together enough money to get a donkey just to survive. But if you had a bunch of donkeys, if you had so many donkeys that, well, you lost track of a few of them and they got lost, it indicated that you were a person of prominence and position and wealth. Well, that's exactly what was going on with Kish's family. And donkeys were nothing to sneeze at. I guess they'd be the, the equivalent of, of a pickup truck in our culture. And so Saul was given this task by his father to chase down these valuable commodities. And you know, I think it's kind of ironic. When we are introduced to the first king of Israel, this made to order, straight off the internet, you know, push your mouse and click version of everything Israel ever wanted in a king, the first thing that we find him doing is chasing down one of the most stubborn, one of the most obstinate, one of the most difficult to train animals that anybody would ever be involved with in a domestic sense. And notice. In spite of his connections, in spite of his countenance, in spite of all of his flesh-driven confidence, Saul was having a very difficult time chasing these donkeys down. Now there is something that we are taught in literature classes called foreshadowing. That is, certain events that take place early on in a story can kind of tell you where the story is going in general. And I believe this is one of them. Because really, the story of Saul's life as king of Israel was really captured in this era. First of all, Saul was given the unenviable task of trying to supervise and rule one of the most stubborn, one of the most unruly, one of the most untrainable peoples the world has ever known. The Israeli people. They were constantly wandering away from God. His job description from there on out was going to be chasing down these wild donkeys that made up this nation in a metaphorical sense. But notice something else about Saul. In verse 4, we're told that he went hither and yon through all these different territories and used all of his wisdom and all of his insight. But he came up short. Why? Because he was using the power of the flesh to accomplish his ends. And really, we see that played out within his life. Significant contrast. You might say, well, you know, I think that's kind of a stretch. You might be reading something into that. I don't think so. Especially when you see how the next king of Israel is introduced to us. How is David introduced when he comes on the scene? Well, he is found doing his father's bidding, just like Saul was doing. But instead of chasing down wild donkeys, David is found doing what? Shepherding the flocks of his father. Taking care of the sheep. Not relying on his own strength, mind you, to accomplish this task, but relying on the power of God. Well, how do you know he was relying on the power of God? Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. The famous account of David and Goliath. David is sent by his father Jesse to bring some supplies down to his older brothers there in the Israeli battle lines that have been drawn with the Philistines. He is appalled and shocked to see this nine foot six inch tall Goliath mocking the armies of God and he is just headed up to here. And although the rest of the Israeli troops were paralyzed by fear in the light of this man, Well, David said, we're going to put an end to this and I'm going to do it right now. And they laughed at him. They said, how in the world can you do something like this? Well, verse 33 of 1 Samuel 17, interesting interaction between Saul and David. It says, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. That's something that was probably of great relief to a guy who was head and shoulders above everybody else and the likely candidate to take on this giant. All right, kid, give it your best shot. But what gave David confidence? What gave David confidence was he had seen the power of God demonstrated as he faithfully served his father's will as a shepherd. And that also was powerful foreshadowing of the ministry of David. Although David had his ups and downs, David knew what it was like to rule God's people trusting in the power of God. And here is one of the most crucial issues of the heart that you and I will ever face. This contrast between David and Saul illustrates something that many, many people neglect, but in reality is one of the greatest deciders of their personal destiny in their entire life. Simple word, character character what is character all about probably the single best definition of character that i have ever heard is this your character is who you are when you're sure no one's looking that's what you're really all about david proved his character by being a faithful shepherd out there while no one was watching he trusted god and in trusting God when no one was watching, he was able to trust God when he was in the spotlight as well. Saul, on the other hand, took matters into his own hands and tried to do the same things, but really in his own strength. And when the chips were down, that's exactly what Saul did. You know, one of the things that we really need to understand about our character, I don't know if you've ever run into someone whose character you would definitely not want to emulate. Maybe they're mean and rude and crusty and and just abrasive and difficult to get along with. I guarantee you, that person didn't wake up one morning and say to themselves, Gee, what am I going to do today? I think I'm going to become mean and rude and crusty and abrasive and difficult to get along with. It was a process, not of collapse, but erosion that made that person who they are. Little decisions, little bitternesses, little grudges held, little sins left unconfessed and undealt with. Opportunities, those forks in the road where we say, will I trust God with my life or will I take it into my own hands and we go, oh, I think I'm going to do it my way. Just this once, just this little thing over here. Little decisions, little tiny decisions that end up directing the entire course of our lives. That's what character is all about. And in God's eyes, gang, can I share this with you as seriously as I possibly can? In God's eyes, nothing matters more to Him than your character. Nothing matters more to Him than that. In fact, I believe that when we stand before the Lord at Judgment Day, we will be shocked at just what a real and relevant issue our character really ended up being. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, and verse 31, Jesus gives us a preview of what Judgment Day is going to be all about. He, he says there, "...when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before them." And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or take you in? Or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. <laughs> At judgment day, people are going to be shocked. They're going to be blown away. Because the things that God is going to value most in your life, please understand this, are not the times where you stood up and said, Hey, look at me, I'm super Christian. The things that God is going to value most in your life are those little things, those little decisions that you made, maybe even things that you don't even remember, but you did because you love the Lord. Maybe it's even picking up a piece of trash because you love the Lord and you don't want to see His world left a mess. Maybe it's even you know, uh, you know, know, finding a dirty diaper left in the grocery store parking lot and you pick it up and throw it away because you realize that if I don't do it, somebody else has to do it. Maybe it's little things like that. Maybe it's those times, not when you're gathered together with God's people and they're singing the Hallelujah Chorus and you're stirred up in songs of praise, but maybe those times or you're just walking down the street, or you woke up in the morning, you got in the shower, and you're kind of groggy, and you're waking up, and the song of praise just starts playing on your lips, and you just start singing to the Lord, and you go, Lord, I just really love you today. I think those are the times that God is going to value. I think those are the times that God is going to reward more than we can ever understand. And so our character is so absolutely crucial, so absolutely important, And our character is oftentimes determined by these little decisions. What kind of little decisions did you make today? Did you make little decisions that led you closer to fellowship with God or away from that? Did you make little decisions that led you to share the love of Jesus with those closest to you or even complete strangers? Or did you make little decisions "Mm, maybe some other time when I feel better? Those decisions have a way of adding up. They sure did with Saul. And so we see that issue of character in the heart. But there was another issue that Saul was going to have to face, a very revealing issue that we see described in verse 5. Remember, Saul is out chasing down the donkeys and not having a very good go of it. In verse 5 we read, When they had come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Now, here I think we see another issue in the character of Saul. Saul was up for looking for the donkeys because his dad told him to, as long as it was a reasonable search. But now things in his mind are getting unreasonable. He has kind of done his thing. He has fulfilled, if you will, the letter of the law. Hey, we looked around the whole territory of Benjamin and find these things, and I'm getting kind of tired of all of this, and boy, unless we turn around, you know, go back the comfortable tents. Uh, My father is going to cease caring about the doggies and be more worried about us. Boy, doesn't that sound like rationalizing all its flaming glory? Let me tell you something. One of the most important decisions that we make on a daily basis is are we going to see things through? Are we going to be faithful to the things that have been asked of us or are we going to fall into the trap of saying, eh, close enough for government work? Now, if you're a government worker, please forgive me, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Are we going to do the minimum and call that a day? Or are we going to pursue excellence? Are we going to, to use a dirty word in our culture, persevere? Well, let me tell you something. The difference between winners and losers is oftentimes caught up in that simple word perseverance i've had the opportunity to run a couple of marathons those 26.2 mile insane races Uh, let me tell you something it plays with your brain any time that you run 18 miles and the thought crosses your mind oh great i have 8.2 left to go i mean that is pretty crazy now let me tell you something there's a difference between those who finish marathons and those who start them with good intentions. Those who finish decide before they even start that they are going to see this thing through. Not just till it gets uncomfortable, but until they get to the very end. Now, when I ran the LA Marathon, a very well run race, they used to have these buses that would come by and pick up people who were. You know, I think far more ambitious than the length of the race would really allow. And it was such a depressing thing while you were running along the course because you'd see these buses going by and the people sitting in these buses you know, that had hit the wall or had gotten injured or, or just tuckered out. I mean, they're sitting in these buses and it looks like they're being shipped off to the concentration camps. And that was a great motivator for me because no matter how tired I got during that race, I promised myself, whatever happens, I ain't riding back to the finish line on that bus. I learned something running that race. It's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a job situation. Because, you know, one thing that happens when you quit. If you start learning to be good at quitting, that is pretty much all you will ever do. You'll be a good quitter the rest of your life. And Saul was a guy who was willing to do what was right till it started to cost him. Did you know that that idea of perseverance is a very important thing in our Christian life? Man, it is one of the essentials, I believe, in living a life that pleases God. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, listen to these words the writer of Hebrews leaves with us. Such an important exhortation here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35 says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. But now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Saul learned how to quit, how to cut corners. And as we'll see played out in the life of Saul, his lack of willingness to persevere when the going got tough would end up costing him dearly. It was a very minor thing. A minor thing with major implications. Notice something else about Saul that's revealed here that sort of sets the stage for a downhill spiral. Look at verses 6 through 9. It says, And he said to them, said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God. This is Saul's servant speaking. And he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, with what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all God, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here in, in, at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he was now called a prophet, was formerly called a seer. Now, a very interesting detail here. The servant says, Hey, look, we're right next to this city where this man of God lives. Most of this city was Brahma, the city that Samuel lived in. And this servant had heard all about Samuel. Really, the scripture tells us that Samuel was known from one end of Israel to the other. But how interesting, Saul knew nothing about him. Saul knew nothing about Samuel. You know, it's like news to this guy. Oh, there's a man of God around here. Oh, that's, that's great. And you know, a very interesting perspective. Saul looks at religion in a very interesting way. And I use the word religion in a very careful sense there, not a relationship with God. Saul kind of looked at religion as a way to get what you want. And if you're going to get what you want, boy, you've got to pay for it, right? I mean, it wasn't like, well, let's seek this man of God and he'll pray to the Lord and maybe the Lord will bless us. It's like, oh man, I know all about these prophets and these seers. Yeah, maybe he'll pray for us or give us some kind of a word or do some divination with chicken entrails. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to want to a little something in the offering, if you will, something in the agape box, or he's not going to help us out. And boy, you know, it's such an insight. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? I mean, people were making big bucks off of religion even back then, and and that's really all Saul knew about religion. He, he didn't really know what a relationship with God was all about. Why didn't Saul know anything about this? Why didn't he know Samuel? I think there was one reason that Saul didn't know Samuel. He was too busy being the son of Kish. He was too busy sitting around, grooving on the idea he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was so, I guess, confident in his own confidence, he had no need for God or the things of God. I think he was one of those guys, maybe you run into and say, oh yeah, spiritual things are very important and you know, someday when I'm done living, I'm going to give serious thought to the things of God. Probably when I'm in the old folks' home. Hopefully in the commercial break, right before Who Wants to Be a Millionaire comes on, because I, I always hate to miss that. But, but I'll really think about it then. You know, there's a big problem with that. People who say, you know, I'll get right later, I'll think about that later. Later is a funny thing, because have you ever noticed how later never comes? It's like tomorrow. It's always a day away, as they said in Annie. You know, I mean, it's always like that. And people who say, well, I'll get right later. I always have a question for them. How do you even know there's going to be a later? How do you know you're going to have this tranquil moment of spiritual insight? I mean, how do you know you're going to have a deathbed in order to get right with God at that moment? How do you know that the last thing that you see before departing this earth aren't going to be the letters GMC coming straight at your face? Not a lot of time to get right with God then, right? But Saul was too busy. The world had his full attention. And that's a dangerous thing for our hearts. When this world or the things of this world start captivating our attention more than the things of God, listen again to what Jesus said in the book of Luke chapter 21. Very important warning to take seriously. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34, Jesus said, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. He's referring to the great tribulation here. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Boy, a very important passage here. What was it that caused people to be asleep at the switch at the time of the rapture? Carousing? That means hard partying, guys drunkenness. Yeah, we go, oh yeah, carousing drunkenness. Oh yeah, those are bad, bad things. And bad, bad people do those things. And boy, I'm glad I do these things. But notice the third thing there. The cares of this life. You can get so caught up in the cares of this life that you miss out on the next. You can be so caught up making a living that you miss out on what life is all about. I think that's why Saul was so blind to who Samuel was. He was too busy getting somewhere in life. And notice as well, this is sort of driven home his reaction to all of this. Verse ten says, Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. You know what this tells me about Saul? It tells me something very important. He was not a leader, he was a follower. It wasn't his idea to go seek out counsel from a man of God. This guy came up with it and said, "Okay, path of least resistance. You know why not? Maybe he'll help us out with the donkeys." Path of least resistance. Well, I know so many people that make that their highway in life. Well, one thing I've discovered the hard way about the path of least resistance is that it always leads downhill. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that that guaranteed shortcut that you are going to take? always ends up being a long cut instead. You ladies probably know that about guys. You know, when we get behind the wheel, you know, and, and we're taking this guaranteed shortcut and it's getting dark and maybe the, the street signs are starting to change to a foreign language and stuff like that. And you know, Ladies, let me give you one piece of advice. When that happens, whatever you do, never say these words, gee, honey, maybe we should stop and ask directions. Because that's just going to postpone the guy stopping and asking for directions for another three hours so he can protect his guyhood. But if you just patiently wait there and wait for Knucklehead to put two and two together and go, I'm hopelessly lost, and come up with a brilliant idea himself. Honey, maybe it's time that I stopped at that service station over there and you go, oh, what a great idea. You know, then you'll get somewhere. But Saul was following the same path of least resistance. He wasn't a person who stood for anything. And one thing that you discover about people who fail to stand for something is that they will fall for anything. And that was going to play out in the life of Saul. He's going to have an embarrassing encounter seeking out counsel from a witch in a place called Endor because he was trying to follow that same path of least resistance. I guess what we see in all of this is pretty simple. Another issue of the heart. What are you going to be committed to? What are you really all about? Is your philosophy just surviving the next crisis? Is it just getting through the next disaster? Is it just making it through to the weekend and hopefully you'll get a little relief then? Or are you going to actually live for something? Are you going to actually stand for something? Better, are you going to stand for someone in life. You know, it's been said that he who knows the why of life can live with any how in life. If you know why you're living, then the circumstances don't have to devastate you because you know that you have a compass heading. You know that even though the storms can get rough and the fog can come in and it can be difficult to find your way, you know if you make up your mind that your life is going to be about following Jesus Christ, no matter what comes your way, staying on course, you're going to get through the fog. You're going to get through the storm. You're going to get through to the other side of the lake as the disciples discovered firsthand that night. Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown. Even though it looked like they were going to go down, But Ward saw him through it. He stilled the storm. Maybe you've gone through times where the Lord has stilled the storm. Maybe you've gone through times in life where your spiritual storms in life have been so overwhelming you were just like the disciples in that boat waking up the Lord and saying, don't you even care if we're going to all perish out here? The Lord kind of looks at you and says, peace, be still. And the whole thing calms down. He looks at you and goes, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Let me ask you that question. Where is your faith? Is it invested in you? Is it invested in a church? Is it invested in a group of people? Or is it invested in the one person who will never let you down, Jesus Christ? That is a foundation that will never fail you. And that's a crucial issue of the heart. Who are you living for? Yourself or the Savior? Sounds like a small choice. But your path in life is going to be radically affected by that choice of the heart. Notice as well in verse 11, very interesting. We've seen the character flaws that were sinking Saul like a rock and would eventually cause his ruin. But very interestingly, the word of God gives us in verse 11 and following a contrast here that's very difficult to miss. It says, as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women coming out to draw water. And he said to them, is the seer here? And they answered them and said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city Because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you shall surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up. For about this time, you will find him. So they went up to the city, and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, here we see a beautiful fruit of another conviction of the heart, consistency. Consistency. Notice these girls that Saul and his servant ran into could tell exactly where Samuel was going to be, like setting their watch. Why? Because Samuel was a man who consistently walked with God. Oh, you want to find Samuel? I'll tell you where you find Samuel. You'll find him ministering to people, you'll find him blessing people, you'll find him. Drawing people close to God. That's what that guy is always doing. Let me ask you a question. If someone were to look at you and say, that's what that person is always doing, what would the that be? Complaining? Carping? Gossiping? <laughs> Goofing off? Watching TV? Obsessing on the wildcats? You name it, there's all kinds of things that we can get into. But Samuel was characterized by a consistent walk with God. And you know how you have a consistent walk with God? This is how you have a consistent walk with God. You don't make some big holy declaration at a big rally where you're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya and everybody's crying crocodile tears and saying, I love you, man. No, this is how you do it. You decide you are going to walk with God tonight. And when the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you decide you are going to walk with God today. And you don't worry about tomorrow because you don't even know if you have a tomorrow. The Lord said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. The Lord says that He wants to have fellowship with you today. Today, while it is called today, the Scripture says. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. This is the day that the Lord has made, the Scripture declares. And this is the only day you've got. That's it. You don't even have a promise up tomorrow. Yesterday's a memory, tomorrow's a promise, today is reality. Where are you today? Uh, are you going to walk with the Lord tomorrow when you get all this other stuff straightened out? Or are you going to say yes to him today? Are you going to get right with the Lord Tomorrow or the next day, or you know, as soon as I get a few unseemly things done in my life, and then I can repent of them later, then I'll get right with. No, today, this is the day. That's what made Samuel so powerful. He was like clockwork. People said, "Of course. Where else would you expect to find the guy?" What a wonderful thing! If that's what people said about us. Oh man, (laughs) what else would you expect to be doing? Praying with people, sharing the word with people, loving people. Being a blessing to other people? Yeah, that's what they are always all about. What a neat reputation. So they go on into the city and they meet Samuel. And very interesting, as Samuel approaches them, he has an encounter with God that I think is very instructive. Verse 15 says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Now, we see this passage. And you ever read a passage like this? And you kind of wonder, how exactly did God speak to Samuel? How did he speak to him? I mean, how do you get to a place where you're like Samuel and God is speaking to you all the time? You know, you hear people say, well, you know, I heard from the Lord about this. Are you ever kind of like, you know, curious and say, well, what do you mean? I mean, did this glowing being appear to you? Did the heavens open? Did an angel come up to you and say, here's the Lord's will for your life? How do you hear from the Lord? How do you hear from the Lord? You know, I think it's a lot more simple than we make it. Notice in verse 15, I think we see the key. It says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came. You know what that tells me? It tells me that Samuel had such a close walk with God that God could whisper in his ear and he'd hear. You've got to be close to someone to whisper in their ear, right? And I think this is key to understanding the voice of God and hearing the voice of the Lord when he calls. Proverbs 3 5 and 6, that famous passage about guidance from the Lord, what does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. How do you hear from the Lord? You make it your business to walk with the Lord. You talk with Him through prayer. You listen to His voice through His Word. You become so familiar with Him and His ways that when He speaks, man... You know it's Him. And when something else speaks, whether it's your emotions, whether it's your issues, whether it's somebody else who's thus saying the Lord to you to death to get you to do what they want you to do, you're going to know it's not the Lord because you recognize the voice of the shepherd. The only way you recognize the voice of the shepherd is to be good sheep. Stay close to Him. That's the Samuel secret. And notice... Where this led, Samuel? This is really a beautiful thing when you begin to understand it. Then Saul drew near to Samuel, verse 18, in the gate and said, Please tell me where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow I will let you go and I will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? I bet Saul was kind of blown away, this complete stranger saying, oh yeah, you're worried about those donkeys. Don't worry about it. They've been found. Whoa. You know, who told you about me? 21, Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? You know, why then do you speak like this to me? Well, I think, Saul was practicing a little false humility there. You know, he was not of the least of Benjamin. He was not this inferiority complex individual that he's describing himself as being. But verse 22, Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, "'Bring the portion which I gave you, which I said to you, set it apart.' So the cook took up the thigh with the upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time has been kept for you since I had invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now, very interesting insight here, and you might miss it if you're not careful. Here is Samuel basically giving a royal welcome for Saul. Let me ask you a question. How hard do you suppose that was for Samuel? Samuel. You remember what's just happened? The people of Israel have said to Samuel, "Uh, Sammy, you're getting old. And your kids don't walk with the Lord like you do. Give us a king. And we're told that that grieved Samuel in his heart. And God said something interesting to Samuel in chapter 8. He said, "Ah, don't worry, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They rejected me. Now, I think what God was saying to Samuel was, I know you feel like you've been rejected. I know you feel like yesterday's news, but don't worry about it. I've got it all under control, and it's just another manifestation of these people's basic stubbornness. So here's Samuel. You want to talk about a person who had every right to hold a grudge. He meets this guy, Saul, who's everything the people of Israel wanted in the king and everything he wasn't. And here he comes. How would you welcome a guy like that? I might be inclined to kind of go, well, okay, all anoint you as king, but only because God told me to. Now, notice something about Samuel. This is another beautiful thing in the heart. He refused to let the flesh set the agenda in his life. He was going to be spirit-filled and spirit-led no matter what was going on. And he could have looked at, at Saul and his little song and dance, but, oh, oh I'm the list in Benjamin. World. Oh, don't, oh, don't talk that about me. He could have just gone, Lord, this guy's pathetic. But he doesn't do it. He goes, God loves you. God's called you. That's good enough for me. Honor him with the best piece of meat we've got in the house. Give him the filet mignon. Give him the place of honor. Why? Because Saul deserved it? No. But because God told him to. Here is the key for avoiding one of the greatest polluters and destroyers of the human heart you will ever encounter bitterness. How does bitterness take a hold? Bitterness takes a hold when we look at things and we say, that's not fair, that's not right, I'm not being treated the way I should be treated. That person's getting over and that person shouldn't be getting over and I should be the person that's chopping on that filet mignon right now. How do you avoid that bitterness? You get your eyes off of what you think is right and fair and you leave it in the hands of God. You say, God, if you tell me to love Him, I'll love Him. Isn't that what grace is all about? Do you think you were any picnic for Jesus Christ to love? and yet we act like we're being heroic when we love other people who are difficult, right? Oh, man, lord, you got to really love me because that twerp is sitting next to me. I, just, you know, I can't believe I'm sitting next to him. But god, oh, you're going to you know, how good has Jesus Christ been to you? We're told that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us at our worst. That's when he died for us. That's the love that he demonstrates. And you know something I have come to believe that grace is the best revenge. Grace is the best revenge. Why? Because when you are gracious to people who have hurt you, who have done you wrong, who perhaps really don't deserve grace, guess what happens? You're free. That person is no longer setting the agenda in your life. When you are bitter towards other people, it's been said, and I think accurately so, bitterness is letting someone live in your brain rent-free. And you'll walk around feeling all bummed out and bitter about them and just all this stuff. And one of the things you discover is oftentimes these people that you're just bitter towards and you've just got this grudge towards and you just think about them all the time. I I can't believe that person's like that. You know one thing you discover about those people? They're oblivious to the fact that they've hurt you. You don't even cross their mind. What? You were mad at me. Mad at you? I think about this all the time. You're not even thinking about this. And then that really drives you crazy. How do you make sure someone like that doesn't have control over your life? It's simple. Ask God for the grace to forgive. Ask God for more than just the grace to forgive. Ask God for the grace to do that person well. To do right by them. To rise above pettiness. To rise above fleshliness. To rise above worldliness. And let that same love that led Jesus Christ to allow Himself to be nailed to a cruel Roman cross live in you and love through you. And you know what? The more you do that, amazing things happen. Your character is transformed. Your commitment to God grows deeper day by day. And the Lord looks upon you and says, that's the way it should be done. Well done the issues of the heart. The issues of the heart are tricky things. And sometimes we look at our own hearts and we go, well, Lord, have I forgiven and have I not forgiven? And, you know, am I bitter? Am I not bitter? Have I, have I really made any progress? Or have I not? Am I really grown or am I not? And boy, let me tell you something. The more you try to look at your heart and the more you try to figure out what's going on in your heart, the more you're going to find yourself like you're chasing your tail. Unless you do one thing. Turn to the one who searches the hearts and minds. And let Him reveal what needs to be changed in your heart. Beautiful prayer to pray on a daily basis. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Not in everybody else, but in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. That's how we are healed from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, thanks that your word does give us such beautiful instructions about how we can have a walk with you that's consistent. God, we bring our character before you because you're not going to be satisfied with our character till we're just like Christ. And Lord, we bring our commitment to you because we are so false and so faulty in our commitments. We we talk a good talk, but the execution just isn't there. Help us to realize that it's not our commitment to you that matters; it's your commitment to us. Lord, we receive that love and we receive that forgiveness, and we pray that just like Samuel, we would be a person of consistency that others would know by reputation that we walk with You. That we would be a person that is just led by Your revelation, learning daily to recognize Your voice through Your Word. And most importantly, we would be a person that relates, not in bitterness, not in the ways of this world, not in the patterns that have been set for us by our own fallen and sinful parents and people that weren't perfect and never could be perfect, but by Your ways. You are perfect, Heavenly Father. Show us Your ways. Teach us Your paths. Let us walk in Your Spirit, we pray. And so be healed in the heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.